and the illegality just kept on like multiplying and then that was even more a compelling reason to keep it secret because you couldn't have it all coming out in the wash. Welcome back. I'm here with Frank Milburn, who is a former Intel professional in the UK. Frank, why don't you just tell me a little bit about your background so that we can get started? Yeah, certainly, Sean. Uh, and thanks. Nice to be with you today. Yeah, I mean, I come from a sort of a long line of, of soldiers, uh, what you call a military family. My father, both my godfathers, my stepfather, my uncles were all in military or in intelligence or both grandparents as well on both sides. My great auntie Femia was a nursing officer in World War II. So the whole family, sort of male and female, we've sort of served, served the, the Great Britain. And my background, yeah, I joined the military from school, initially airborne, and then I was picked up for officer. And I did university for three years, uh, then officer training, Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and was then recruited for uh, defense intelligence through the army, which I then did for four years. And then since then, really, I've worked sort of mainstream consultancy, but I kind of went into specialized in uh, sort of confidential research and investigative projects for sort of, you know, financial time stock exchange, like 100 and, and Fortune 500 companies globally. I worked overseas for oil and gas companies, like managing security and also managing all the sort of the geopolitical risks associated with, with their operations, both at a strategic and operational level and also on the ground. So that's really my background. And, and what company was that? I know that sounds very much like a company in the U.S. called the Eurasia Group, where they yeah, do yeah. A, a lot of things like that. But Yeah, Eurasia Group, I say that it's more academic. It's sort of master's and PhDs. I work yeah. for sort of smaller boutique companies doing, doing sort of market entry or market exit for sort of fragile states, you know, you know, difficult countries to operate in where there's a lot of gray area risk, you know, the corruption, the terrorism, the cronyism, the nepotism all those types of things, organized crime. I work really for small boutiques. I work for one large company, sort of a security investigations company, probably most people have heard of. Uh, it's called Control Risks. It's a London-based company, but it's global. Okay. So I work for them as a consultant, basically as a North Africa security advisor to one of their oil and gas service companies operating across uh, you know, the Middle East and North Africa. Okay. Those are amazing bona fides, by the way. So with those bona fides, how on earth did you get involved in the UAP topic? Well, really, when I was a kid, I was brought up with it. My parents are sort of very open-minded. I've you know, got books dating back you know, of my old man and, and my mom to the 1960s, Ivor Sanderson and you know, uninvited visitors and things like that. So old school UAP stuff or UFO stuff. But um, really, it piqued my interest again when I was in the military. I worked at, as an intelligence officer. I worked a fair bit with the Royal Air Force. So I'd be advising, say, I don't know, air crew on the surface to air missile threat, you know, in a specific environment. And then you interact with air crew. I also debriefed air crew as well. And it became to me very apparent that there were, you know, craft operating, you know, sort of like NATO airspaces and UK airspaces that, that weren't Russian. And bear in mind, I mean, the UK had a lot of experience and, and the US as well, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a big US Air Force activity in the UK. But during the Cold War, you know, the Brits, and the Americans, they had a lot of experience intercepting and warding off Russian aircraft that were trying to come into the UK air defense identification zone and, and NATO airspaces in general. So, you know, when you're being told that there are craft kind of operating with impunity, like over the UK and well inside, you know, the, the UK air defense identification zone, then, you know, that your ears kind of prick up and you're told that they're, they're not ours and they're not American and they're not Russian. So that was back in the 90s. I was told that. 
How was that described to you? Just ignore it. Was it given with an air of, we know it's not harmful, but we know they're there, but just ignore it. Don't no, I mean, they were definitely they were definitely considered a problem. And I mean, if you look at the 2000 report that was issued by Defence Intelligence 55, which was unexplained aerial phenomena in the UK air defence region, which was a defence intelligence report that was released in 2000 uh, to the intelligence community in the UK. And then it was released to the public in 2006. But I mean, that said in bold capital, it said, well, that UAP exists is, is indisputable. You know, their ability to manoeuvre and outperform aircraft and missiles, you know, their flight characteristics. And it also said that... It gave the circumstances under which the UK military would consider UAP to be a threat. And one was, you know, flying unimpeded into the UK in, in times of peace, crisis or war, being able to, you know, gather, uh, you know, electronic intelligence, causing a potential threat to airliners and air safety in general. So I was told, yeah, they were considered a, a threat, but there's not much that we can, that we seem to be able to do about it. Okay, now... Since you're a former military intelligence officer, I have to ask this question. So there was a prior interview that somebody had done with John Ramirez, who's a former yeah. CIA analyst. And since you mentioned surface-to-air missiles and understanding Soviet, now Russian, surface-to-air missile systems, he claimed that the S-300 air defense system had yeah. something they called, or the Russians called, UFO mode. Yeah. A, what does that mean? B, is that something you can confirm? And anything that you might be aware of to validate or shoot that claim down? I know John Ramirez, and I mean, he's legit. And I mean, I'm not a surface to air missile specialist. I know about, you know, or back in the day, I knew about the characteristics in terms of range and proximity fuses and things like that in order to be able to advise pilots. But if he's saying that it has a, a UFO mode, that presumably would be related to the radar so that the radar could differentiate between you know, the specific flight characteristics of UAP as opposed to conventional jet aircraft. So I, I would give that credence. Um, I mean, I'd, ha I'd have to ask a specialist on surface to air missiles, but I mean, I, right. I would give credence to anything that John says. Nothing that I've heard him say, I mean, is you know, kind of jumps out at me as being, as being ridiculous. I mean, he seems to be someone who's very much an expert and immersed uh, in his topic. Okay. Yeah, I was very curious when he brought that up, because it could also just be, you know, how military can be sometimes just a euphemism for something that travels extremely fast, right? Yeah. And what interested me is, was it a euphemism or was it <laughs> that they had, had so many returns that they actually designed that into the system? So anyway. Well, so I was, Sean, I was going to say, just let me read you this which is actually taken from the, the Project Condine report, which was about the you know, UAP in the UK the British. region. Yeah, it said yeah. it gave the specific parameters whereby you know, the, the British Ministry of Defence and the Royal Air Force would consider UAP a threat. So it says they would be considered a threat. Uh, controlled, unidentified air objects could successfully penetrate the defended airspace of the UK air defence uh, environment with hostile intent in peace, crisis or war. Second one, damage or potential damage or danger could be caused in the form of physical effects or electronic effects or if there's a possibility of an air hazard, such as a collision or damaging incident with civil or military air traffic. Next one, objects within the airspace were found to be hostile if challenged and invulnerable to radar tracking and could outmaneuver our airborne or ground-based air defenses, i.e. it can outmaneuver fighters and surface-to-air missiles. 
And then the last one, controlled objects could enter and leave the UK air defense region having possibly obtained intelligence data, e.g. E imagery, elins, etc. So that last one is basically saying whether it's in peace, crisis or war, if they're entering the UK air defense region, that they're a threat if, if they can, you know, be picking up missions effectively and, and you know, comment SIGINT, ELID. Now, in the U.S., in the defense establishment, everything's a threat. And the reason everything's a threat is because that's how you get budget appropriation dollars, right? Now, I understand that having things in the sky that maneuver at, you know, mock extremely fast speeds can be a danger. But, you know, looking at the literature, there hasn't been, I mean, there have been some alleged collisions, right, where you have like the Roswell incident where it's claimed that you had two craft that hit each other and then crashed. Again, but there's no way to really independently verify whether or not what aspects of that story are true and which aspects of that story are false. But have there been enough incidents to come to a hard conclusion that they are a threat or is it just having these objects maneuvering in the sky is just by their very nature something that could lead to safety incidents? Yeah, well, I think we, we need to sort of differentiate between like an air hazard and a safety risk. And I think there's numerous occasions, uh, there's numerous cases, UK, USA, where airline staff have been, you know, the pilots being particularly perturbed because they've either had to, you know, they had a, like a near miss where they've had to you know, maneuver to avoid an object or an object has been circling in the vicinity, like the Japan Airlines one in 1988, which is quite a famous one. There's also a famous one in the UK with an airliner coming into land and it had had a near miss with the UAP. Also the Chicago O'Hare Airport one, I mean, having a sort of object hovering over a, a busy airport, I mean, that, that, that should give cause for alarm as well. But, you know, that's the aerist side. If you're talking about hostile intent, it's very difficult to understand intent. They've certainly got the capability to be hostile if they intended to do so. But without knowing you know, who they are, what they are, where they are, or when they're from, it's very difficult to pin down the intent. But I was just listening to a podcast by a whistleblower who was a, a US Air Force security police officer. And he basically had a, a sighting and abduction experience. So he had physiological effects, which made him feel bad. He felt very scared. So that to me would be hostile. And if you have UAP flying in the facility of nuclear assets, whether it's carriers or whether it's a launch control facility for, for ballistic missiles, and it can either you know shut down the missiles, or in the case of Russia, it can initiate, it can actually st start up you know the, the process of launch, then that would be to me you know hostile intent. If you saw these UAP, if they had like a, you know Russian stars or North Korean stars or Chinese stars on the side of the fuselage, there wouldn't be any doubt as as to whether it were hostile intent or not. To me, it looks like, you know, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. And that's something that I thought, I mean, a long time before, uh, you know, Grush started saying the same thing. And then he said there's been cases where, you know, humans have been harmed. If you look at uh, 19, 1977 in Calaris, Brazil, there was an incident where locals, indigenous fishermen, basically, and, you know, fisher people were, were injured by rays of light coming from UAP. And, the, you know, there were strange entities around them in the village. And, you know, they had, a, you know, physical kind of burn effects. They had you know, psychological, neurological effects, all of which were captured by both the Brazilian intelligence service and the National Intelligence Service, by Air Force intelligence as well, and also by medical doctors and psychiatrists. So I think there are instances where UAP or the intelligences behind them have demonstrated hostile intent. Now, I'm not saying that that's across the board, but I personally believe, and I can't validate this, I personally believe that there's more than one intelligence, you know, sort of operating in and around us 
So some may be, may be benign, some may be malign. But Grush kind of uh, reinforced what I thought, that you have to take it on a case-by-case basis, very much so. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Now, you did use an interesting choice of words a few minutes back. You said, depending on where and when they come from. Was yeah. that intentional or was that <laughs> when you said no, no, it, it, no, it is intentional because I, I'm really trying to point out that it you know, really dep- depends upon who you speak with in terms of, of you know, serious scientists and people who've worked, you know, like UAP task force or, or SAP or ATIP. I mean, people have uh, very, very different opinions about where these come from. Some will say it's ET. Some will say it's, you know, kind of interdimensional. Some people, if you talk to like Dr. Michael Masters and Dr. Jack Sarfati, they're convinced that a lot of the sightings we see are, you know, craft made by us from the future. And even within that, some people will posit, Dr. Mike Masters, he'll posit that it's that, that these are future humans coming back from a sort of a, a point of view of anthropological interest in us. Whereas other scientists I've spoken to have said that, no, there's this malign intent and that, you know, future humans are coming back for malign purposes. It really depends who you speak to. So that's why it's so difficult to establish what the intent is. Because the capability is there, but it's very hard to establish the intent. So given that, you know, the allegation is that there's an extremely small number of people in governments worldwide working on this problem, right? I mean, you have Grush talking about crash retrievals and, and things like that. What are the motivations for, again, positing that Roswell happened? Okay, let's assume Roswell happened. You had an air of secrecy for 80 years. What do you think is the justification for or the intent behind keeping something like this such a close-knit secret for that long? Okay, well, I think starting sort of back in the day in the during the Second World War, you know, the Foo Fighters, uh, you know, both the Allies and the Germans or the Axis, they thought that Foo Fighters of some kind of, you know, uh, new secret weapon from the other side. I think that was per- perturbing for the U.S. Army Air Force, as, as it was then, and also the Royal Air Force. And then... And the Germans, by the, the way. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. the Germans as well, and, and the Italians. But I think once you had Roswell, and assuming that the Americans do have craft intact or, you know, or pieces off, they were worried, I think, with all the UAP sightings, if you look at the documentation, from like, you know, the late 1940s and the 1950s, they were very worried, the Americans, about reports of UAP swamping uh, the American reporting systems. They wouldn't be able to react properly to a, a Soviet threat, as it were. And also as well, there's some evidence suggests that UAP groups had kind of like communist sympathist leanings. So that, would, of course, in the time of the high paranoia of the Cold War, that would also have very much worried people um, in, in, in deep in the US and they'd want to keep it a cover up. But then I think also, as well, the technological aspects, if you came into possession of, of such technologies and you're still trying to figure them out, you want to make sure that nobody else knows about it. That's you know, basic operational security. But then I think as the cover-up went on and people were murdered, effectively, to sustain the cover-up, and also you know, people were ridiculed, they were moved out of their jobs, some people committed suicide as a result because they couldn't take the ridicule or you know, the defamation. I think then that then the cover-up became so illegal, plus the, the money going into the illegal programs that it, it, it kind of it took on a, a snowball effect and the illegality just kept on like multiplying. And then that was even more a compelling reason to keep it secret because you couldn't have it all coming out in the wash. I think that's the most compelling argument I've heard about all this because people talk about ontological shock. Most factions of humanity, I think, can handle it. You know, there might be some, there might be some disruptions 
but I think this is the snowball effect is the most. And there, part of it, too, is, as you mentioned, the operational security. But you could still unveil just the reality that we're not alone and, and leave it at, like at a very base admission. You could get away with that without harming any national security. Yet no government has officially done that yet. But I think the compounding of the illegality, not only that, there are rumors right now that Lockheed Martin is trying to separate or divest one of its divisions, which may contain this technology. And, you know, in my past, I was an investment banker. And generally, when in situations like that, in order to diversify risk or to separate risk, you just stick and sometimes separate just underperforming assets. You stick them in a, you know, I'm not going to curse, but an ESCO, right? And, you know, you disclose the risk to the maximum legal and ethical requirements that you're required. But generally, the buyer knows that they're buying something that's underperforming, but they might be able to turn around, et cetera. So this, I think, is a way for that company in general to separate its risk. Now, the question is, is who would buy them? And then would they be legally liable for, because again, if the US government had granted that technology without any legal bidding system, essentially favoring one company over another, there's probably dozens of companies. Yeah, there's probably dozens of companies that have gone bankrupt. They would all have claims on those assets because there was not a fair process. So that might seem small to somebody who's not an expert on those topics, but that's massive, massive legal exposure. And again, I'm assuming Lockheed Martin is one of the companies that has this stuff. I could be completely wrong. It could also be Boeing that might have a similar issue with this. And there might be semiconductor companies. There might be, you know, who knows, right? Fairchild Semiconductor, maybe way back in the day, they were given some hints on, you know, how a transistor might work and, and and things like that. So there are huge legal implications and not to mention the abductee, contactee, whatever you want to call it, phenomena, right? If it's real, then that's a whole other can of worms where instead of protecting the people, you stigmatize them. And uh, to your point, some likely committed suicide. So. Anyway, that's a long aside to an answer to your question. I think you're right. Not only that, right now, at a time when trust, at least in the United States, is at the lowest level in government institutions that I think I've seen in my own lifetime, this thing coming out that basically since 1947, at least, that we might not have really been operating the republic that we thought we'd been operating in, right? There's been the, a whole system of special access programs and things like that that have been operating outside of legal authority is a huge scandal. So it's a state within a state, effectively. Yeah. And in a system that has increasingly been delegitimized, I mean, again, I don't want to get too much into politics, but you've had President Biden, President Trump, Vice President Pence, Hillary Clinton. If you or I had dealt with classified information, 0.1% the level of, 
of the way they mishandled it, we would be in prison, right? All I'm just trying to say is there's a lack of confidence in our government institutions. So I think I look at this as an opportunity for the government to kind of reestablish trust with the populace. And I think if they screw this up, I mean, their legitimacy will be shot forever. But anyway, we can get into the whole disclosure thing in the next segment. But could I just so can I make a quick point on the sort of the corporate side with the the kind of consolidation of uh, you know aerospace and defense industries, especially in the United States over the last kind of like three decades as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be very surprised. I mean, you know, have companies been doing their transactional due diligence uh, well when they've been taking on like you know components of other companies? What what have they been disclosing effectively to their shareholders, right? And to their stakeholders, let alone the legal requirement for for reporting. So that to me would be another issue that I think lawyers could really stick a greasy pole into. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. And I think there was sometime in the 1970s, the government issued some de facto bailout of Lockheed Martin. They gave him some huge sum of money in order to keep him afloat. And the question is, is in that particular transaction, was there some of this technology transfer? Anyway, this is not something people really talk about, but in terms of like just a monetary impact, like the contactees and things like that, I mean, that's a massive problem. But in terms of financial impact, it would dwarf this. Right. You're going to have shareholders going all the way back to 1947 trying to recover funds. And I guarantee there are lawyers, even though the people are probably long since dead, who will find a way, who will find a way to make a massive payout from these sorts of things. Okay. All right. Going back to disclosure. So, one of the reasons that we don't have this disclosure, in your opinion, is this compounding snowballing effect. Now, in terms of mitigating that, my view is you have to have kind of what South Africa did, some sort of truth and reconciliation commission. Otherwise, without that, folks in these programs have absolutely no incentive to come out. So when they do come out, or as these facts start to trickle out, what do you think we're going to learn? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I'll just go go back. Previously, the NDAA, it said that you know, whistleblowers would not be discriminated against in terms of their access, okay, in terms of you know, their job, their ability to, if they were an intelligence officer like Rush, for example. He said, okay, I have been discriminated against. At the time, I said, well, there's no get out of jail free card because you could have been in one of these programs. You could have known about you know, the illegality of you know, one company having access to the tech and other companies don't, the unfair market competition. You could have been party to cover up where people have been murdered or have been pressured, right? But you, there's no incentive for you if there's no get, get out of jail free card to go to Congress and say, hey, I know all about it, right? Because they could say, right, you're a criminal. But now for the Intelligence Authorization Act for next year, which should be signed in September or so this year, hopefully, um, it actually does give a get-out-of-jail-free card and says, you know, to aerospace contractors, contractors in general, if you have access to this kit, you can come and talk about it. And even if you've been party to illegal activities, then you won't be penalised. So that is a get-out-of-jail-free card. However... That was what I was about to say. However, yeah. Yeah, however, from, you know, my knowledge and my own research where scientists working in the white world, working on UAP programmes have been harassed, you're not going to 
want to come out necessarily if you know exactly what the people that you've been working for, if you know how nefarious they are and what they've got up to. I mean, you might be thinking, well, great. So I come out and I spill the beans and I don't get put in jail, but maybe I get murdered or maybe something else not, uh, nasty happens to me. So I think that's the problem because, you know, do you want to, you see, you want to get out of jail free card, but do you want to go and live your life in witness protection because you're being threatened? Probably not. 100% agree. And that's why I think it, that program doesn't really work because if there is a system of these special access programs that are operating outside of legal authority, they're operating by definition outside legal authority. So, you know, they, and, you know, one day you might be walking down the street and you just disappear. And as you well know, there are people in both our governments who are very good at making that happen. So the other issue that I see is the difference between Title 50 and Title 10 authority, right? So Arrow only has Title 10 authority, which just covers military intelligence. So they go to the CIA or National Geospatial Agency or NRO and ask for this data. I mean, if I'm working at NRO or NGA, I'm just going to say, go pound sand. <laughs> yeah, give you yeah, yeah, but, but Moultrie, Kirkpatrick's boss, does have Title 50. And Kirkpatrick, that does mean that he can be read in. I mean, all Moultrie, if Moultrie were interested, he'd say, right, I want him read into this, 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 and this. So he has the authority to do that. But I think in terms of what we're going to learn, just circling back, in terms of what we're going to yeah. learn, I don't think, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, yeah, but maybe behind closed doors, because I can't see... On the one hand, I can see politicians like Gillibrand, Rubio, I can see them wanting to be kind of like champions of transparency. You know, they might have a presidential bid, whatever, down the future. But at the same time, I don't think they want to be seen as people who undermine the security of the United States. So I think that any of this truth and reconciliation stuff will happen behind closed doors because potentially all this Ill illegality, you know, UAP gate, I mean, it'll make Watergate look like a Christmas party by comparison. And especially with America so polarized as never before. And American institutions, you know, considered by the general populace to not have the standing that they had years and years ago, where everybody can like believe in the republic and democracy and all the rest of it. I think that's a very, very tricky problem. And it could be a huge, huge scandal, huge scandal. And I, I think that's going to be want to be managed behind closed doors. I'm not saying I'm in favor of that, but I'm saying for for the sake of American kind of you know political stability. Yeah, I think we're beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you had the FBI literally censoring people indirectly on Twitter. We're beyond that. I, I Like I said, I, I'm more of maybe I'm naive, but I think I look at this as an opportunity for the government to take back that trust and just say, look, we understand. If I were President Biden, I would say, look, we understand trust is at one of the lowest points in American yeah. history, and we want to make it right. And this is by unveiling this secret and this is a secret that's been kept. And most of the worst stuff was done in the distant past, right? Uh, in the early part of those 80 years. We want to come clean with this as a first step in restoring confidence in the American institutions and system. But I mean, just right, like you can't even watch the news anymore, right? I mean, as an example, as a perfect example, I had an interview with somebody who's works in national security circles. And I asked him, are you aware of David Grush? And he's like, who? Right. So the state has been very good at co-opting mainstream media sources and generally avoiding this topic altogether. Nowadays, not in past years, but nowadays, the most effective 
use of a consumer by the kind of mainstream media is not what they say, it's what they don't say, right? So I'll give you a non-UAP example. So a few months back, Seymour Hirsch reported that the U.S. military took out the Nord Stream pipeline, okay? The silence by the mainstream media was deafening. Now, that's not to say that the U.S. military did it, right? Now, he had a very specific narrative about which specific unit did it. The U.K. may have done it too, right? But that's not what's important here. What's important here is the fact that the media had zero curiosity about this report, like barely reported it, tells me that that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Because military sources said, don't talk about this. If you want access, just don't, just ignore it. Let it pass. American attention spans are extremely short. Don't worry about it. But you look at it, if you step back and look at it from Occam's razor perspective, A, why would Russia do it, right? Second, if they did it, why would they reinvest in rebuilding it, right? It makes no sense. But again, whenever the mainstream media is just silent on an extremely volatile topic, chances are it's true. (laughs) And the, the Rush disclosure is no different in this case. Sorry, I keep going on these semi-tangent. No, look, so I, I agree with you completely. I mean, my friend and colleague, Ross Coulthard, I mean, he is always lamenting the fact, he's saying, oh, well, this is like the biggest story ever, ever. Yeah, it's and, the biggest and, story and, in history. And, yeah. and nobody's jumping on it. Why aren't people jumping on it? Why, when the balloons were shot down and they said that they'd recover them, then why didn't the media jump on like the Canadian government when they didn't recover them? Well, they didn't say anything about the recovery. They're just silent. It's a, a, it's a, a damning silence. Well, not only that, why did the media jump on that story at all? Yeah. Right. So again, this is going to sound more conspiratorial, but if you're running a disinformation campaign and you want the public to confuse balloons with UAPs, you you just slip that idea into the collective consciousness, right? So that when they see something anomalous in the sky, like, oh, it's probably just one of those Chinese balloons. But there was insane media coverage at the very beginning of this topic. And then you notice in the middle of the coverage, they stopped calling them balloons and started classifying them as UAPs, right? Mm. Interesting how that was done. Yeah, but they they didn't follow up on any of the recovery or anything. I mean, the one that that went uh, off the East Coast, yes, they covered that and the blokes, you know, on the boats pulling it out of the drink. But the one in Canada, Trudeau said, oh, yes, we're going to retrieve it. And then there's nothing after that. Yeah, it's frustrating, to, to say the least. When and actually, that's quite, this. if you contrast that, sorry, with, um, I mean, like in the 1950s, 1960s, there were a lot of, uh, not mainstream kind of broadsheet newspapers and states, but like lots of regional papers were covering like UFOs and reporting on UFOs. The big boys seem to like leave it alone. Because the big boys are easier to control, right? Yeah. There's only one throat to choke where there's many throats to choke in the regional, but also regional entities, at least in the United States, have been consolidated. Right. So now everybody's kind of dancing to the same tune. I think governments have controlled media for far longer than the last 10 years. I think it's been this way since the advent of broadcast journalism. I think the only reason it seems to be fraying at the seams is because of the Internet. 
right? There's more ideas that are getting out. And a lot of those ideas are bad ideas and wrong, and it's easy to spread disinformation. You just have to look at as many different sources as you can, and then just try to use mosaic theory to figure it out. So when something happens is reported in the news, I will call friends who are experts in those topics and yeah, that will generally be the best source I have. 70% of the time, the media will be roughly on target, but 30% of the time, like complete either bad reporting, incompetent reporting, or an outright lie or deception. Not by the media, but by whoever provided the media with the story that they're reporting. Right. Yeah, I mean, hence where you've got you know guys like I don't know, like Liberation Times, the Debrief, and others, who have filled the gap because you know the mainstream media aren't doing their job effectively or being told not to do their job effectively. Classic example being the New York Times doing the story in 2017, and then like kind of like the interest just tailed off from them after that. I mean, you know, surely it's the greatest story never told, and it should be keep on being told, but it's not by them. Yeah, and I also think. <laughs> People have two ideas in their mind at the same time. One, that government is completely corrupt and incompetent. And two, that government is very calculating and methodical and would you know, deliberately package this thing over a number of years where they slowly drip information. And at the end of the day, neither is true. It's somewhere in the middle. You just have hundreds of different factions. Some want to disclose, some don't. Those who oppose disclosure will you know, try to silence. So this is not going to be a clean drip, right? It's going to be ugly. And it's going to be hard to separate facts from fiction for a while. I think we were talking about what you expect to come out over you know, the next few days and weeks. Not even days and weeks, but in the next five years. Do you think we're still with this at this point five years from now, or do you think there's going to be a breakthrough? Well, I think there's already been breakthroughs. I mean, I think if you compare, I said this the other day, if you compare, it's effectively kind of like eight decades, more or less, right, since mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the modern UAP era. But if you compare what happened like up to 2017, like the first sort of, you know, 70 years, and the kind of decade since then, the best part of the decade that we're through. I mean, a hell of a lot's happened since 2017. I think more people, I think dependence upon how things go with Grush and how he's treated and how the DODIG and the ICIG deal with his case. I think that there will be, you know, more people coming out. But I, I think there's a lot of distrust of Aro at the moment. And that guy I was mm -hmm. listening to, the nuclear whistleblower, he was saying that a lot of people that he knows, you know, former uh, US Air Force personnel who worked on nukes, that they don't have any faith in Aro. But they still might go and talk to Congress. But uh, are, you, are you talking about Robert Salas? No, not Robert Salas. Another guy trying to dig out his name. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who, I mean, Robert Salas said that he was not that well dealt with by Aro. And I think that people distrust Aro. And just the fact that they haven't seemed to have got their act together, they don't have a, you know, like a, a public facing website that people can access yet. All those kind of like little things about, you know, having the power to do things, not having the authority to do things. You know, I, I don't think people trust them. Well, did you, did you see the panel, the NASA panel on all this stuff? Yeah, I watched a bit of that, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that gave me no hope. I mean, it was just it was just the smug arrogance. I mean, they airbrush photos, for Christ's sake, right? 
And I, I've asked people who work on certain programs where they can't talk about anything about this UAP topic. And, you know, they can't, they, without violating their security oath, they just said, well, just look at the NASA footage. NASA has plenty of footage, right? Yeah. And yet these people just sit there with this smug arrogance that we need data, we need this, we need that. And it's just like, you know, I can convict somebody in this country on the testimony of two hobos and a hooker. Right. But I need like multispectral analysis that didn't exist in 1950 to, 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 to verify these things exist. It's just yeah. absurd. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's absurd and arrogant. Yeah, as you say. It'll be interesting to see what comes. But in the next five, 10 years, what do you see coming out? Very, very hard to say. But I think uh, Genie's definitely out of the bottle. I don't think we're going to see you know, bodies and craft, because that's, you know, national security. And I think anybody who thinks that is, is being very unrealistic. As I often say, like, you wouldn't expect you know, to be shown around like the next generation air dominance platform and have everything explained to you in intricate detail about how all the different, you know, components and sensors work. So I don't think that's going to happen with UAP. I, I don't know, to be honest, but I think we've come too far, really, for it to go back in the tube. That's all I can really say. It's very hard to make these kind of predictions. Do you think they'll at least make an attempt to let people know the the characteristics of the non-human entities that we've been dealing with, i.e., are they ETs, interdimensional, some form of plasma beings, some form of time travelers, et cetera? Because I'm sure that they have some minimal intelligence about where some of these non-human intelligences come from that they might be able to, you know, at the very least to protect the public. So for instance, if you look at David Polite's research, you know, is there Excellent, something yeah. take, taking people from national parks, right? Like yeah. just to protect people in some way. Do you, do you suspect that they'll, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, he did that, that excellent last film that he did, um, Missing Form on the, uh, the UFO Connection, which had very, very disturbing commentary on uh, potential UFO activity and disappearances of people in national parks. And he kind of said that he's coming around to the idea that, you know, it could be like UAP activity, as you suggest. But also as well, I mean, you know, like John Alexander in his book, he talked about sort of m- m- malicious and malignant entity, a skinwalker that eviscerated a, a cow in broad daylight within 400 meters of the rancher. I mean, you know, you've got these invisible entities operating. <laughs> you've got these weird cryptids that you can, uh, you can unload like big rounds into them and it doesn't seem to do anything to them. And they'll attack, but they'll attack your livestock and maybe attack you. So very difficult to say who and what they are and very difficult to say what the government's actually going to come out and say, well, you know, uh, there, there are invisible things around you that can really mess up your life, that can cause you long-term illness and that can affect all your friends, like some kind of like nasty flu. So... Uh, Really, I don't know. I mean, in the UFO Connection movie about uh, Missing 411, he actually talks, uh, Pilates talks this uh, this FBI guy who's like a real-life Fox Mulder, and he says, well, yeah, he goes, there's things that we can't explain that are making people disappear in the parks, and that's exactly what the government doesn't want you to know. Yeah, and again, though, it's there's so much noise, and it's tough to separate the the signal from the noise and a lot of it's produced you know a lot of the a lot of the noise is created by government as well right in terms to hide classified programs you, you know you talk about richard Doty, 
right? In the Paul Benowitz case, where he's like, yeah, Paul, I think you're right. I think they're aliens, right? I, I think, and he's yeah. just trying to protect secrets around the Manzana nuclear weapons storage facility at Kirtland Air Force Base. It's just tough to get to the, the truth. So now in your experience, what, what do you personally think the phenomena is? Now, I, I know you said that you think there are different non-human intelligences and, and things like that, but what other things do you think, if you had to come up with a core phenomena story, what would be in that core story? Difficult one. Possibly some extraterrestrials, mm. definitely some intelligences that come through portals like at Skinwalker and on other locations. Certainly some have the ability to, uh, you know, to, to operate invisibly. I'd add maybe some kind of advanced, uh, you know, conscious AI certainly could be one part uh, of it. Humans from the future, certainly. Some kind of ultra-terrestrial, something living deep in the oceans or, you know, deep underground that's been on Earth or, you know, long before, maybe longer than we have. I, I just don't know. Just time travelers, it's, it's all very, very complicated. And I think you could have strands of each. You could have... You know, you could have time traveling extraterrestrials. There was recently a, I am a Star Trek, Star Trek fan, that mirror, mirroring life. There was a recent Star Trek episode, spoiler alert. And it was, uh, they had time travelers from the future. One was a, an ET, but like a, non, a humanoid ET that had been surgically altered to look like human, which is what you hear in a lot of the UAP law, right? Then there was a human who was actually an ET because he'd been born in space because Earth had been kind of like devastated by catastrophe by then. Then there's another genetically modified human who comes back in time as well. And then there's also talk about an alien conspiracy to arrest development on Earth and anybody who talks about it is branded a kook. So it's kind of like Star Trek mirroring kind of like real life. But I think that... So that's that's the... That's... that's a more frightening theory about because you hear this if, if these species are so much more advanced than us why are they crashing or why are we finding just abandoned craft fully intact right and you know there, there's a theory that maybe they're leaving these things here to retard our development infect us with something maybe there's some infrastructure tied to these things that we don't see kind of in a fourth dimensional context that will suddenly sprout at the right time effectively trojan horses right yeah so there's so many places you can take this that could be really dark or it could be you know they could be beneficent entities that are been here for millions of years who are trying to guide human evolution who knows Right. And maybe like, you know, please don't destroy the planet because we live here too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or it could be, you know, multidimensional, right? Where it's all it's one place and those atomic explosions ripple throughout these other dimensions. Who knows? Propulsion. Sorry, quick, quick, quick one. I found the interview. It's a guy's called Sergeant Mario Woods. It was the Ellsworth okay. UFO case in the late 70s. And then he also as well, this is on podcast UFO, and he also talks about, he went, he talked to the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office and gave a four-hour testimony about his 1977 incident, which was a sighting and also abduction. And his mate was basically catatonic in the vehicle, his buddy. And they saw beings, entities, apparently. Was he 
American Air Force, British. Yeah, Air yeah, Force? American Air Force. Yeah, security. And so they were, where did it happen? This was uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base, and they were basically doing their security rounds. And they had this sighting, and his mate went completely catatonic. And then they woke up like four hours later, parked up by the bottom of this dam, and no idea how, how they got there. And what did he describe? You said he described the entities. Yeah, I mean, you'll have to see the. You have to listen to it. He didn't describe them in detail, but he said there was one that was bigger and that was different. I don't think he got a really good look at them, but he was actually he was absolutely petrified. And afterwards, he. He has kind of like some kind of out of body experiences, which like really freak him out as well, because he's like feels like he's not in control. Plus, as well, he's being hammered because then uh, Dodie turns up as well as a, as a young airman and is part of an Afosi investigative team. And, and this guy's thinking, "Oh my god!" And he doesn't actually tell them about the beings. He told Aro about the beings, but he didn't tell Afosi in 1977. He's like, "You know, I'll get I'll get booted out of my job." They didn't hypnotize him because that's what they did to Terry Loveless. They right, hypnotized him. What's also interesting about the Loveless case, I, inter- I interviewed Terry a few months back, and he has, or he had, he no longer has, but he had two devices in his knee. One looks like it's made out of his own bone, right? It's like a floral structure. The other one looks like a buck standard semiconductor, like a black semiconductor chip, just like this black rectangle. And he thought they were he thought they were both ETs. And I and I said, that's not that that looks like and that looks like technology that may have existed back in the late 70s when he was abducted and when they interviewed him. So I I imagine our own government was monitoring him at the same time to see what was happening. But anyway, so that's like a my lab type scenario. Like a my lab type scenario. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I, I think it was both. I think he had been abducted. And I think that when the, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations interviewed him, they kind of went in and stuck something in his leg to see where he was at the same time. So he was going to have it removed. No U.S. doctor would do it because he had some heart issues that if they you know, kind of did an operation, there's a very slight chance it could put him into arrhythmia or whatever, you know, he could potentially die. Very small, but they refused to do it. So he had scheduled an appointment in Mexico. The Mexican doctor was going to do it. And I think a few days or the day before the appointment, he woke up and there were holes in both of his knees. And having been in the military, it's just like, yep, it was like somebody took him, you know, knocked him out. And they weren't sure which knee it was. They're just like, just drill both. Just do both. <laughs> <laughs> just to be sure. So I'm speculating, but this That's whole. This whole uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very, very strange. All right. So I think in the last few minutes, I have you for this segment. What are your views on the propulsion systems? Like what? I know you've talked to Jack Serfati at length on some of this, but like, what's the power plant? How do they operate? Right. Is it anti-gravitic? Is it doing something with electromagnetism? Truth is, I do not know. I keep a mind open to it, but they produce, you know, huge amounts of power. If you look at the, the uh, SCU, the scientific collusion for UAP studies, which I'm a member of, they did a report on Nimitz and they said that the Tic Tac, they, they calculated the power output from it 
And they said that it was had a trajectory and it was producing basically like um, every second it was producing like the equivalent of a, of a, of a, of a small nuke detonation. That was, you know, to, to basically propel it to that speed and to reach that acceleration. So incredibly powerful and whatever the power source is, and also potentially incredibly dangerous in terms of a weapon system. One scientist I spoke to who worked on free energy was telling me that, yeah, it's all great in principle to the idea of extracting kind of unlimited amounts of energy from the ether and powering every kind of like, you know, poor African and Brazilian and Indian village, you know, and every, you know, poor village across the world having a power source. But also as well, you then have the ability to have inordinate amounts of energy in a particular point in space-time, which can actually rip the fabric of space-time, and it makes nukes look like firecrackers. And so if you know how to harvest the free energy, you'd be sufficiently intelligent enough to be able to produce a weapon from it. And so if you think you have a Islamic State where in 2016, very well financed with hundreds of millions, if not nearly a you know, billion dollars, uh, if you look at a, a sort of transnational criminal drug actor, a terrorist actor like a Hezbollah, and their patrons, Iran, they certainly have uh, the money and people with the brains to be able to harness that kind of technology, where it known, where, where the blueprints out there effectively how to do it. So, I, you know, I don't know about the propulsion. You'd have to really have to ask a, a physicist and there'll be huge arguments. I mean, I'm on a, an email thread mm-hmm. with Dr. Jack Safati. There's huge arguments between him and Dr. Hal Puthoff and, and Dr. Eric David. And to be honest, I mean, it, for me, you know, I'm not a physicist, right? And, and it, all, it, it all becomes like Mandarin Chinese, you know, because I don't speak Mandarin either. And they're all, well, it's no, actually, it's this equation or this equation. You'd really have to speak to somebody, you know, bang on it like them. All I know is it's, it's very, very dangerous, potentially very, very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, you could destroy a planet. <laughs> like, I mean, it's probably yeah, enough, I mean, you know, it's like zero point so, energy, right? Cash. Yeah, Safati so talks about, you know, planet destroyers. And he also talks uh, about the, you know, the portal at Skinwalker Ranch with, with, you know, the ability to fry people. And people have been injured, you know, at Skinwalker Ranch, right? I mean, in, on, on a kind of like a smaller level. But I mean, one guy's been hospitalized a couple of times. Dr. Travis got burnt. And that's aside from uh, hitchhikers that latch onto you. But the ability of, you know, a portal to actually kind of like emit something, you know, that, could, that can fry you, like some kind of stargate that can, you know, send, uh, you know, very nasty energy your, your way. It's very, very worrying. Yeah, there's also reports of people experiencing extreme fear, right, with no external stimulus, right? And I think it was the the book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon where they talked about this. And, you know, one might posit it could be some sort of infrasonic weapon, right, where you just feel uneasy Mm. and just hone to a certain, which is a, a set of frequencies that you can't hear, but can drive people crazy can make them hallucinate can do all sorts of crazy activate your fear response yeah yeah so i had asked colm kelleher i asked him that question if they had looked at that and he said they had they didn't look at that specifically during his time on the ranch i mean they did look at the flora and fauna to see if there was anything like a fungus or anything like that that would cause people to hallucinate they weren't able to find anything i also asked him about the gilsonite in the soil if there was any effect that that might cause and he said no not really so i don't know there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of outstanding questions on this but i think we covered a lot and i definitely want to talk about disclosure in the next episode so with that i want to thank you for your time and i look forward to talking with you about your thoughts on that thanks very much sean If you enjoyed this video, 
please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.